Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about prostate cancer with Dr. Preston Sprankel. Dr. Sprankel is an associate professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Preston, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. So I'm a urologic oncologist by training. So that means that I have done um, urologic surgery residency and then an oncology fellowship. So I primarily take care of men and women with urologic cancers. Um, My practice now primarily uh, deals with men with prostate cancer and also testicular cancer. So let's talk a little bit more about prostate cancer. It seems to be a pretty ubiquitous cancer. Uh, Many, many men uh, seem to get it, but it seems that it's also a little bit heterogeneous in terms of how it's managed. So can you give us kind of the lay of the land in terms of the epidemiology of prostate cancer? Who gets it? When do they get it? And how bad is it? Great. So those are great observations. Um, so prostate cancer is very common. It's the probably most, most common solid organ malignancy in men. Um, it will ultimately affect between one in seven and one in nine men um, by throughout their life. It is, however, typically in older men. So over the age of 50 is when we really feel strongly about screening and, and evaluating for prostate cancer. Um, fortunately, most of the prostate cancers that we find uh, do not require treatment though, or at least require immediate treatment. And it tends to be, uh, for most of the cases, a very slow-growing and slow-progressing disease. So one that we can manage more as a chronic disease than necessarily requiring really intensive therapy. There are some patients and men that do require or we would recommend treatment for because their cancer could cause them a problem in the next 15 or 20 years. But really, prostate cancer exceptionally rarely would cause uh, problems for a man within 10 years of diagnosis, unless it's a very high or very late stage cancer. So, Preston, you know, some of our listeners might be listening to that thinking, well, then what's the purpose of screening? If most men are going to do just fine with this, um, and for most people, it's not going to really cause them any problems for at least another 10 years, why should we be getting screened at the age of 50? That's a great question. So the reason that we screen is because our screening test, which is typically a PSA blood test, so it's a blood test that allows us to screen for prostate cancer. Just because the majority of men or the vast majority of men will not have a problem from their prostate cancer, we can identify those who will and we can treat them. And interventions for prostate cancer can and do save lives. So we have studies that have shown that screening does improve the detection of prostate cancer and does improve uh, the survival of men in a population who were screened. So we do firmly believe that we should do that. It's a easy intervention to be screened. Um, and, uh, it, it definitely does save 
does save lives. Are there certain populations either, you know, genetically or by race category or other factors that might predispose a a particular gentleman for getting worse prostate cancer than others? There are. This is an area that we are continuing to learn more about. Um, But in general, men of uh, black or African heritage uh, do seem to have a higher rate of developing prostate cancer and higher risk and higher grade prostate cancer. So that is a population that we recommend screening for. Um, men with certain genomic and genetic mutations. So uh, the breast cancer or BRCA mutation family is definitely one of those. So in men who have multiple first degree relatives or even a first degree relative with prostate cancer, or they have women with breast cancer, um, even some with pancreatic cancer. So there are familial and genetic, um, I guess, risks that do increase a man's possibility of developing a prostate cancer. And do men who have such a genetic predisposition, like let's say, you know, you have uh, a sister who has a BRCA mutation um, and if you test, so we'll get into whether in fact should you get tested as a man if if, uh, a woman in your family has a genetic mutation for, for BRCA. Uh, So that's the first question. Should you get uh, genetic testing? And second, regardless of whether you get tested or not, if you're from that family kindred with a genetic mutation, granted, it increases your risk of prostate cancer, but is the prostate cancer that you eventually get, if you get a prostate cancer, is that prognostically worse? Is it a more aggressive cancer than if you did not have that familial predisposition? So the first question I would regarding should you get screened if you're in that family, I would say yes. Um, I think uh, I I would at least recommend that you discuss it with a genetic counselor. And we have excellent genetic counselors here at Yale that can talk with you more specifically or talk with a man more specifically about their risk and the and the benefits of determining that versus some of the drawbacks and so they can make an informed decision. But in general, yes, I would say at least having the discussion about screening would be very important um, and probably would be of benefit, not only for themselves, but for any of their children, because it is something that can be passed down uh, through um, through the generations. Uh, in terms of uh, BRCA2 deletion associated prostate cancers, yes, those are more aggressive. So they occur at an earlier age. They appear to be associated with more aggressive phenotype with a higher likelihood of um, higher grade disease and developing metastases. So it is something that in those cohorts of those families, uh, screening and testing is definitely one of our important evaluation and management plans for for those patients. Yeah. So in terms of, of screening then, can you tell us a little bit more about what screening protocols you follow for men at average risk, the general population, and whether that's different um, for men who may have a genetic predisposition or men who might be of African-American ancestry? So that's a very good question, and it's complex and one that we are constantly seeking to find the, the right answer to, and, and it is elusive. So that they, I would say that there's an evolutionary process with that. But the early detection for prostate cancer guidelines from the NCCN um, 
we actually are meeting this afternoon to try to finalize exactly that. Can we agree on a sort of risk stratified um, protocol for who should be getting tested at what frequency? I would say we do agree that men who are at higher risk should be tested starting at an earlier age. Uh, the frequency of testing depends on PSA blood testing um, results. It does not necessarily, uh, and it changes somewhat based on age. Um, it's an open discussion of whether or not those at a higher risk based on genetic or racial characteristics we think should be screened more often. Um, it's unclear if they should, uh, but definitely we want to screen them earlier uh, because they can potentially be diagnosed with a high-risk cancer in their 40s, uh, at which point intervention has a much longer benefit than uh, if we can identify the cancer early. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier was that because so many of these prostate cancers are indolent, um, you still recommend screening because PSA is a relatively easy test to do. It's a blood test. And so the result of that blood test may or may not um, actually cause an intervention. At what point um, do you start looking at that PSA and saying, geez, now we really need to um, to do something, to investigate further. Is it a particular number of the PSA or is it a trend in the PSA? How do you make that, that uh, distinction? And what's the next step for, for a, a man who might meet those criteria in terms of actually trying to find prostate cancer earlier? So we no longer use strict cutoffs for PSA. Um, traditionally, we had used a level of around three or a PSA of four to indicate that a further evaluation was needed. We now really have a what we call shared decision-making discussion with the patients, with the men, and talk about the fact that a higher PSA is associated with a higher likelihood of having a prostate cancer detected on biopsy. Um, what we usually consider a cutoff where we would consider biopsy and start that discussion is if the PSA is over three, um, sometimes over four. It also depends somewhat on the age of the man. Uh, but you also mentioned the rate of rise of the PSA. If a PSA is completely stable, that that is less often associated with a um, prostate cancer versus one that seems to be rising consistently, that would be more concerning. Um, however, the, the, the most predictive thing still is a PSA that is elevated. So a PSA is elevated over four statistically has the greatest predictive rate um, of further develop, identifying a prostate cancer in the future. So it, it's still a little bit complicated. We're trying to make it simple. I think that the easiest way to think about it, if you have a PSA that is elevated over four, it is worth further discussion with your primary care physician or urologist about what additional steps you may be taking. And that typically for us at Yale includes an MRI of the prostate and then very likely a prostate biopsy. So you mentioned this concept of shared decision-making and, and talking to your doctor about um, your PSA, because even if your PSA was elevated, if, for example, you were quite elderly or you had a million other comorbidities, we actually kind of weigh things all out. You know, the risk of prostate cancer and the treatment of prostate cancer might actually be 
lower in terms of the disease itself than the risks of the potential intervention and the treatment and the the competing risks of your other comorbidities. Why wouldn't that discussion happen before the PSA ever occurred? In other words, if you know that you're never going to act on that PSA screening test, why get the test? You're absolutely right, and it should. And so the shared decision-making is supposed to occur before a PSA is drawn. Um, the problem is it is not all physicians, and that burden often falls on primary care physicians to be able to have that discussion. But you're absolutely right. So the first real sort of cutoff is unless someone has, we think, a, at least a 10-year life expectancy, we recommend strongly against initiating PSA testing. So that's where we're trying to trying to make that cutoff. Because for those men who we do identify prostate cancer, we have lots of new novel treatments. So I think that have a lot less of the side effects that many men have been concerned about. Some of those include ablation therapies, uh, focal therapies, things that have many fewer side effects um, than the traditional surgery and radiation. So we're going to dive a little bit more into some of those novel therapies right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the care of prostate cancer patients with my guest, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their liver cancer program brings together a dedicated group of specialists whose focus is determining the best personalized treatment plan for each patient. Learn more at smilocancerhospital.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that nearly 150,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year alone. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and men and women over the age of 45 should have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. We're talking about the care of patients with prostate cancer, and right before the break, we were talking about the fact that, for the most part, many men who get prostate cancer, and in fact, many men do get prostate cancer, will have indolent disease. Still, screening is recommended. Um, because it's an easy screening test. It's a blood test and it can pick up prostate cancer early when it's most treatable and it's been shown in studies to save lives. So Preston, we ended the conversation right before the break talking about the fact that for many patients, prostate cancer is relatively indolent. Um, you know, you oftentimes will not have problems from your prostate cancer. And so weighing the risks and benefits of treatment versus doing nothing and certainly watchful waiting or uh, 
it, it has been a strategy that has been used for some patients with prostate cancer. So can you walk us through a little bit more of what happens when that PSA comes back, it is elevated, and your doctor wants to start looking for prostate cancer. Start there and tell us a little bit about what men might expect um, in that situation. So when there when there is an elevated PSA, um, the first step is to really recheck that to check another PSA test and confirm that there is an elevation. Um, while the PSA is a very good screening test for prostate cancer, it is not a, it is definitely not perfect. So there has significant limitations. The, the prostate, normal prostate tissue also makes PSA. So there can be a variety of reasons for a PSA blood test to be elevated other than prostate cancer. Um, so the initial thing would be to repeat a PSA blood test. We have a lot of new kind of, I guess, biomarkers that can be used in that case as well once a PSA is found to be elevated that confirm whether the PSA is elevated, but also can give more precise indications. They try to control or correct for some of those benign reasons for a PSA to be elevated to evaluate someone's true PSA or prostate cancer risk. Um, there are a variety of them, and I don't really want to list all of them, but your doctor should know, and we have quite a few available. Um, after that, if there still is felt to be some risk, very often a prostate MRI will be completed. The prostate MRI is a relatively new thing within the last 10 years where we've been using it routinely or at a higher rate because it allows us to look in the prostate. So the prostate previously is one of the few solid organs where we were not able to really look into it to try to identify if there were areas that were suspicious for a tumor or a cancer. Um, the prostate MRI has really revolutionized that and allows us to look inside the prostate, see if there are areas that appear suspicious, grade them on their risk, and allow us to then perform targeted biopsies so we can really, in a more selective way, sample those areas that are more suspicious. This um, has been tremendous because it allows us to more accurately identify prostate cancer. So sometimes in a hard to reach area of the prostate, we would not biopsy that area unless we knew that there was something there. This allows us to know that there's an area that's higher risk and do targeted biopsies at that area. And so once a biopsy is done um, it, and it's sent to the pathologist, the pathologist can say it's prostate cancer. But for many men, that prostate cancer is different from other men. In other words, it's not all the same. Some men, based on their prostate cancer biopsy, will be given a, a score and they're told, you know what, we can we can. Uh, watch this uh, and monitor you. Other men are given a, a biopsy. It's still called prostate cancer, um, but they're told that they need more aggressive treatment. So what gives? How are you making this distinction? Tell us more about the scoring of prostate cancer and how that affects management. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we actually have a five-point scale on which we grade prostate cancer 
Um, that is the role of the pathologist and having expert pathology um, helps tremendously to be able to evaluate those, like you mentioned, those pieces of tissue from the prostate go to a special doctor who processes them and looks at them under a microscope and they have a standardized grading scale. Um, and based on that grade, that is the primary driver for most of our treatment decisions about what to do for prostate cancer. Uh, we also now use um, genomic testing. So this is different than what we were talking about before with testing someone's genetics. And if they have a sort of mutation that's being passed down from family members, the genomic analysis is actually taking the prostate cancer cells and doing analysis on those cancer cells to determine if this cancer is more or less aggressive. Um, and I've been using those tests for over five years now and find them very helpful in discussing with patients what their risk may be and helping them determine if treatment is indicated and if so, what are their best treatment options. And so is there a particular um, cutoff on that five-point grading scale that will tip your into one category versus another in terms of how aggressive you're going to be with management? Um, similarly, on, on the genomic tests, I mean, or is this something that's a little bit more amorphous, talk to your doctor and kind of figure it out together? Yeah, so I, mean, I, can, I can definitely tell you how I approach it, but um, I would say that this is a very personalized discussion with your urologist um, or your radiation oncologist or your, your doctor. But in general, grade one is considered low grade um, and almost universally, all of the guidelines around the world recommend active surveillance or a deferred treatment, meaning that treatment is not needed right away. Um, grade two, some of those men can be on surveillance. Some of them should probably consider treatment. And that's where the genomic testing in, in my practice comes in handy because it helps us identify which of those grade two is considered favorable intermediate risk, which of those patients we can continue to observe versus which of them um, we think their cancer will progress and we should treat them early. Um, and then grade three, four, and five, those are our unfavorable intermediate and higher risk prostate cancers. Those typically require treatment um, with rare exception. And so let's talk a little bit more about treatment. I mean, um, you had mentioned before the break that historically some of the treatments are associated with side effects that need to be considered when you're thinking about um, the risks and benefits of, of therapy for prostate cancer. And you had also mentioned that now there are more novel therapies that are coming out um, that have fewer side effects. So can you kind of walk us through the potpourri of, of treatment options that men who have uh, prostate cancer might think about? Sure. I will give you a very abridged version because this is, uh, can, can be a very in-depth discussion. But um, yes, I think as mentioned at the beginning, you know, prostate cancer is a disease that grows relatively slowly most of the time. We are treating men for prostate cancer, not because we are worried in most cases, and this is primarily talking about localized prostate cancer, so not high-risk aggressive metastatic prostate cancer. But for men with localized prostate cancer, um, we are typically doing our treatments to see a survival benefit 
beyond 10 years. So uh, most men will live 10 years. So we're again talking about treating those younger men um, or older men that are healthy and have at least a 10 year life expectancy because the survival benefit really materializes 10, 15, 20 years in the future. It's not something that happens right away. But because of that, it is very important to consider what the side effects of these treatments are and what the impact of these treatments on someone's quality of life is going to be because it is something that they will be living with for that extended duration of time that we are trying to achieve by doing treatment for their prostate cancer. Um, so our gold standard therapies are surgery to remove the prostate, radiation therapy um, to really treat the cancer where it is. Uh, it's a non-surgical therapy. And as you mentioned, we have these newer treatments or ablation therapies where we use energy of some sort, uh, could be heat, could be cold, could be electricity, to try um, to destroy the prostate tissue within the prostate. So we leave the prostate in place and we can then destroy the prostate tissue that is there. With the revolution in MRI imaging and targeted biopsy, we now along with this, have much better information anatomically about well, about where prostate cancers are located. Um, if they're located in just one part of the prostate, in multiple parts of the prostate, and we can then tailor our treatment using these ablation therapies to potentially be just one part of the prostate um, or even the whole one. Uh, the, the main reason that these ablation therapies are preferred in some cases is that they are not associated with many of the common side effects or de definitely at much lower levels um, that, are, that we see with our traditional treatments like surgery and radiation. So much less urinary incontinence, um, much better preservation of erections and sexual function after treatment, many fewer episodes of toxicity to the rectum or long-term toxicities. So I think it's a really great um, new area of exploration. I do have to put the caveat in that these are relatively new technologies and um, our national organizations do recommend that these procedures be done as part of a registry or a trial. Uh, fortunately, we have several trials that are open as well as registries. So have many of these treatments available for our patients here. And so, you know, it sounds like um, the, these new, new therapies have significantly lower side effects. Do we have data to suggest that they are equivalent in terms of outcomes to our traditional surgery, radiation therapy, et cetera? Or is that really why these need to be done um, in a registry study because those data are still um, lacking? That's correct, Denise. Yeah. So our short-term, we have short-term follow-up data. We are following these patients very closely. So typically we are doing repeat biopsies after treatment to evaluate for complete treatment success. And in those studies, there are small numbers of persistent cancer, but we can then retreat them. And so it is a trade-off with an improved quality of life and a very high likelihood of complete cancer control, but a it is a higher risk of needing additional therapy within a couple of years than you would have after surgery or radiation. Um, 
but interestingly, if we look at longer term studies, there are some studies in Europe that have been done now with about 10 years of follow up. And instead of looking at a biopsy a couple years later, they looked at what is the likelihood of requiring a salvage therapy. So a, a more significant therapy um, to treat recurrent or residual prostate cancer. And in those studies, there was not a significant difference between men who had surgery, men who had radiation, or men who had these focal therapies. So it's that's definitely preliminary data. This is an area that we are learning more about. But I think it's safe to say that ablation therapies are not going to be as effective as a single treatment as radiation or surgery, but they can be repeated and uh, they have a much lower risk profile. Dr. Preston Sprenkel is an associate professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.